Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, February 2nd, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. So we are missing Elliot today. Uh, we wish him well. Working on some study. And mm-hmm. uh, so good luck there, Elliot. Um, today... We're going to talk about our haunted planet, mm-hmm. possession and high strangeness. So, well, this may be a little bit out of scope uh, for our normal range of topics. Uh, we could do a little bit of kind of, you know, verbal gymnastics and make it applicable through talking about mental health or something like that. But in all honesty, this is something that we're interested in and wanted to talk about. So that's pretty much where we're at. I think uh, it applies to health and wellness. Think so? Yeah, I, I guess you well say so. possessed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> it is kind of like mental hygiene, too. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we're going to get into that more, but sure. I, I think it's applicable. Yeah. Well, I guess just to start off, we might address anybody who might be like, why, you know, are they talking about this? Or like, what's the deal? You know, I came here to learn about quinoa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wrong show. Yeah. <laughs> uh no, we, I mean, it, there are a lot of really interesting stories that have come up about this lately, but we've all been, you know, had kind of a uh, an interest in this topic in the past because it dovetails into a lot of other topics. So it's it's really broad. I mean, we could talk about it for many hours. Uh, so, but where I think this is interesting is when you approach uh, the topic of like schizophrenia, you know, or delusions or, or some kind of violent mental illness that might resemble something that you could otherwise call possession. And then what are cases where, you know, this is legitimately unexplainable in the context of what we understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of those cases that straddle that line that kind of go back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we did want to talk about that. Uh, and uh, definitely uh, John Keel a little bit. We'll bring him into it. And uh, and Malachi Martin, if, if, if anybody's familiar with Malachi Martin's work. Or Malachi. I, you know, I watched a documentary and all of his friends called him Malachi. So I don't know mm-hmm. what to call him. Yeah. I guess if his friends are calling him Malachi. I'm stick with Malachi. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not his friend, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One of our chatters put that uh, this show should be the hell and wellness show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Again, back to address like people who might be confused about this, um, there are a lot of cases, like I was mentioning, where it's not just stuff that happens in movies or the weird story that your buddy told you at a party one time. This happens quite a bit, uh, and it's not as marked and as violent necessarily as it might seem like in The Exorcist or those kind of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's where a lot of confusion comes into play. Uh, you know, and if you really want to get down to brass tacks, we're also dealing with the existence of psychopaths, which are in some cases hard to distinguish from somebody who could be possessed. And again, I want to disclaimer that, like, we're not talking about demons per se from the scripture, you know what I mean? Or something that you might like, why are they talking about demons? It's not necessarily demons. When you say possessed, it, it kind of means a different thing. You might be Again, here's where we come up against what people think is possible and what's not. But you could be possessed by some sort of other entity, right? Some sort of conscious 
entity of some kind. I'm not saying mm-hmm. whether it's a, it's an alien or it's from another dimension or it's a, it's a demon, you know, who came from Babylon. Like that part, I, I have absolutely no idea, but I can attest to the high, high probability that there's some kind of an intrusion by another force that happens there. And if can you want to leave, oh, I'm sorry. Can we call them negative entities? Sure. <laughs> sure. Like negative, but, negative yeah. energies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But this, you know, this precludes uh, somebody listening to this, allowing for that possibility. A lot of people don't even allow for that. And so that's where it makes it hard to talk about. But I think that a, a middle ground between that is if you want to think of it in a certain way. Uh, I think this also actually happens literally um, that you can become possessed by your own machinations, you know, by your own intentions or your own like by lying to and deceiving yourself. Uh, and, and becoming focused on something which is detrimental to you, you can actually exhibit the traits of possession basically by losing your focus. I don't know how much sense that makes, but. Yeah, it makes well, sense. It's like being ignorant about something, making yourself vulnerable for negative energies because you're ignorant about them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. And if I'm yeah. not mistaken, wasn't that in the Bible? Be ignorant of all things evil or something like that. Which like is you're really, telling you to be ignorant? Well, I'm not 100% sure that that's in the Bible or if it is, if that's what it exactly said. But that to me sounds like some really awful advice. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's a jungle out there. And if, you know, we're not able to perceive basically 95% of everything that's around us, saying to be ignorant about the potential for evil at least is not very good sound advice to give to somebody. You should be as smart as you can about all things possible because it offers some protection. Mm -hmm. I I think everybody has that awareness a little bit too, just in the language, you know, when people speak, oh, you know, she was possessed or that person's a demon or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like it's, it's part of the language in explaining the unexplainable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember, um, this was a while ago when the, uh, in the lead up to the presidential election in the States, there was that thing where Hillary was being interviewed Mm -hmm. and had this kind of weird brain glitch moment and i remember a lot of people actually jumping on that alex jones actually being one of them said that she was actually possessed that like oh yeah it's obvious look she had that weird little twitchy thing so she clearly has some kind of like uh possession going on some kind of demon inhabiting her which seemed like a bit of a stretch um but you know mind you i mean i don't actually know maybe maybe she was possessed by something or is to this day. Yeah, she may very well be, you know, it's hard to, I guess that's where you would start speculating. Is that, is that the case? Is it mental illness? Is she a psychopath? Is, you know, what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It could be. Um, But at the same time, I think it's, it's kind of, uh, I think it kind of comes down to in a lot of cases where people, um, you know, when they don't have something to uh, explain malvolence. No, is that pronounced right? Malevolence. Yeah, malevolence. malevolence. Thank you. I think you've corrected me on that before, actually, Tiff. But uh, <laughs> malevolence. Um, you know, you, you see somebody who who is kind of evil and acting evil, and it's kind of like almost 
you can't really accept that somebody is just that evil. So it's kind of like, well, they must be possessed. That's the only explanation. You know, they don't necessarily consciously think that out, but it's kind of like they'll grab onto some other possibility because um, to actually accept the fact that there are, like there is actual evil embodied in individuals mm-hmm. is kind of difficult to, to kind of wrap your head around. Yeah. And wasn't it Google that had that saying, don't be evil? <laughs> that that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look how good they were at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a really funny uh, kind of was like exclaim to the universe, don't be evil is our motto. And then say, okay, here's $200 billion. Try not to be evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it wasn't they've... too long ago in the course of human history that demons or evil spirits were uh, thought to be causing psychological mayhem mental distress like if someone was mentally ill before uh we knew more about what factors play into the actual causation of mental illness and people thought that that person afflicted was possessed by demons well yeah i mean it's not even you don't even have to go back you just have to go to other uh cultures yeah like there was an incident in pakistan recently where um, there was a woman who had, well, they, they don't know for sure, but they suspect looking back on it that she probably had schizophrenia mm-hmm. and the, you know, the, the husband not really being educated on that sort of thing, assumed that she was possessed and took her to see some kind of witch doctory type people. And they ended up killing her mm-hmm. with their ritual, you know, get rid of the spirit type stuff. And it's not the only thing. a bonfire yeah. or something? Sick. Was that the same one? Yeah, it might've been. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was awful because they claimed that uh, she was possessed by the devil and the devil made her jump into the fire. And mm. that was crazy. <laughs> All the witnesses said that. No, they pretty much like, you know, throw her in, you know. Yeah. Crazy. It's really crazy. But Sot carries a lot of stories about exorcisms. A lot of them take place in Latin America or maybe on that just stands out to me for some reason but in india they have these uh what they call exorcism fairs where people go and they have all these exorcists or whatever the the indian equivalent is of that and people go to be cleansed of whatever they think might be possessing them Mm -hmm. yeah in like mass mass numbers like it's like a huge crowd of people all being exercised of their demons Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's a tale as old as time. That's the, the pilgrimage, right? I mean, that's why people go to, to Mecca or in uh, Tibet. They go to the, I forget the name of the mountain, but the eastern face of this one mountain. And, you know, the, if people uh, migrate to a certain area on a ritualistic basis to cleanse themselves. Mm. I think that's a really, really old uh, meme. Um, you even see the same thing in the, uh, the sort of quote unquote psychopathic realms. If you know about like the, um, the Bohemian club and Bohemian Grove, which is a real thing. It's not just Mm -hmm. an Alex Jones thing, you know, how, like what actually happens is debated, but they, uh, they do a ceremony where they do, they call the cremation of care and they, they cremate their cares or their worries, you know, in order to be renewed. But in their case, they're being renewed so they can screw over the planet. Uh, (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's not really for personal development, so to speak. They're cremating their care for other people. 
I think Let's that's get rid of that. I don't I need to care actually, about anybody. Yeah, well, I do think that's the distinguishing factor, but it's interesting to see the ritual applied in two different contexts because people who are sold and empathic um, would do a ritual like that in order to to help themselves be purified and cleansed in order to be a better person, to be more effective and most likely to help other people. But you can do the same ritual in order to make yourself more powerful in order to dominate and control other people. So it's almost hmm. like, you know, it can be white or black, so to speak, hmm. lighter, lighter, dark, however you want to frame that. Yeah. And Tiff said that there are a lot of stories <laughs> coming from Latin America. You know, South America as a culture has a lot of like, like voodoo, black magic, and you know, and mm. and stuff of that kind, like curses, and yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Santeria is that one of them? Too? Yes, that's it. Like kind of like your South American version of Wicca. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Well, it's interesting too because lately it seems like the uh, the Catholic Church has been kind of warning people against dabbling in the occult. And things like that. So it's kind of like there's a rise of it in North America as well. It seems like people are more open to the idea. For some reason, Satanism seems to be kind of making a comeback. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times people are just kind of like, you know, they're, they're pretty ensconced in kind of the materialist, uh, view of reality that, you know, there isn't anything beyond the concrete and what we can see. And probably don't take that kind of stuff very seriously and maybe end up dabbling in something that they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, just because they don't really believe that, that there's any possibility for that sort of thing, or they're just playing around or, I mean, maybe they do take it seriously and do want to invite dark forces into their lives or something like that. But I just found it interesting that the, the, the Catholic church seems to be, I mean, they tend to go overboard a little bit. I mean, I, there was that one article where the guy was, uh, saying that yoga was, you know, the work of the devil and allows the allows Satan into your life and all this kind of stuff. And I, I was like, you know, it's stretching. Like, I don't it really think stretching. there's uh Yeah. So, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, like it's like you're stretching your body. I don't, I don't kind of think that that's a means of, of allowing Satan into your life. You know, I, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. <laughs> no, I yeah, think that's just right medieval. That yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, I think in that same article, that priest, he was an Irish priest... He said that also Indian head massage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just thought of cranial sacral massage. <laughs> he said that you should not be laying your hands on people's heads because instead of communicating the Holy Spirit with them, you can be sending them bad spirits. So do not mm. touch anyone's head hmm. in the context yeah, of massage. <laughs> Well, that's kind of interesting because that also, I know in Reiki, they say that as well. Like, you know, when you're doing Reiki positions on the body, you're supposed to stay away from the crown. Like, don't, don't yeah. mess with that area. So, I, I mean, you know, it might just be coincidental, but uh, yeah, might be something to it. Well, not I, to say that there like aren't certain can. practices that can open you up to uh, encounters Evil with energy. ethereal realms, to put it that yeah. way. But... I don't know, maybe there is some ancient basis to these fears about doing certain practices and maybe it just kind of went too far, got out of hand, or the line between good practices and bad practices got blurred somehow and people can't tell mm -hmm. the difference anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People cannot distinguish or discern evil intent. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. just, just plain ignorant, you know. 
you know. So yeah, I think that article you were talking about is that that Irish priest calls for backup mm-hmm. and talks no. about how no. we're having a pastoral emergency mm-hmm. and who anyone who doesn't see the need for exorcists is out of touch with reality. Yeah. Well, there have been a lot of reports recently that the number of requests for exorcisms has pretty much skyrocketed. Yeah. Uh, There was an interview I listened to with Malachi Martin. He's a Catholic priest who wrote Hostage to the Devil. And he said that, I think this interview took place back in 2009, but he said there's been an 800% increase just in his area. And I think at the time he was Whoa. working in north, northwest United States, an 800% increase in requests for exorcisms. And that the Catholic Church is having a hard time keeping up with the demand because they don't have that many exorcists nowadays because a lot of priests and bishops don't believe in the existence of Satan or hell mm. or evil. Yeah. Well, and the Vatican yeah. first issued official guidelines on exorcism in like 1614, and then mm. they just recently revised them in 1999. So I think they are definitely concerned about it. Yeah, yeah I think it's a, it, it, there's a problem with, how do I say this, ascribing agency uh to to one organization over this issue like you know i think yeah. people go that direction by saying oh because the catholics instituted their guidelines in 1600 and and that during that time the world was a really dark and super violent place so you know that's where that came from so it still is. Allow, <laughs> yeah, it still is yeah. yeah what i mean is i think like uh the, when people think about that or think about uh, rituals or perceptions of the other or you know things that are outside of our realm um they would like to say that that one organization whether it be the catholics or the muslims or the hebrews or whoever it is uh that that the reason for these descriptions of this phenomena is because of the faith not because of the existence of something mm. does that make sense you yeah. know, saying saying that the perception of the phenomena comes from the faith that's an anthropological issue, not that it's based in some sort of reality that we don't understand. And I think that's where the misunderstanding comes into play. And it prevents people from talking about it. Because yeah. you can draw you can draw parallels between the, the Hindu culture, the Native American culture, African cultures, all these old cultures that have um interactions with phenomena that are outside of our realm they all have extremely similar archetypes. You know, there's the hungry ghosts. Uh, there's the, uh, the, what, the Wetiko, right, in the Native American culture. There's the uh, jinn in the Arabic culture. There's demons in the Christian culture. They're all very similar phenomena that are entities kind of outside of our realm that either feed on or, you know, predate upon us in some way or another. So if you can allow yourself to think of that broad picture, it makes it much easier to talk about and say, oh, well, okay, so an exorcism case that sounds really weird and has some unexplainable pieces is much easier to think about if I think about it in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think it's it's interesting too because uh, it seems like um, uh, modern like psychiatry, psychology, like there are. I mean, obviously, it's pretty rare, 
but there are some, you know, uh, psychologists or psychiatrists out there who are like, yeah, you know, this is real. Like this is actually something that's a, that's a real phenomena and will actually in some cases work with it. Um, often, you know, under hypnosis. So it's, it's very far removed from anything that you would think of as a traditional exorcism, like from the Catholic, uh, side of things. Um, but it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's almost a form of like kind of hypnotic, uh, talk therapy of, of kind of ejecting these malevolent, no, I said it wrong again, malevolent <laughs> entities. That's very interesting because according to some psychiatrists or psychologists, spirit release therapy, which is, um, you know, something that William Baldwin introduced with his book, Spirit mm -hmm. Release Therapy, a technical manual. It was published in 1995. They're saying that that works sometimes better than talk therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. basically they like, you know, put a, pe a person into hypnosis and screen their energy and they will like see attachments and like to uh, talk to the attachment, which will often be called the spirit attached and they heal the spirit and the person by releasing it into the light, so to speak. Mm. And yes, this has been like um, more recognized in North America, especially and the mm. rest of the world. I don't know. Well, I wonder if we can speculate on why there's this uptick and requests for exorcisms, because there's been lots of polls lately saying that people are less religious. Catholics don't practice uh, Catholicism in their adulthood like they did when they were children. And yet we have this rise in requests for exorcisms. So what could be behind that? Mm. What do you guys think? Well, I think well, it could be real activity, you know, mm -hmm. some form or another. I, uh, and Doug, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, no, I was going to say I, the, uh, no, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Uh, okay. I know some people who will obviously remain anonymous who uh, fairly recently within a number of, of years, I mean, not this year, uh, were compelled uh, to find an exorcist because they didn't know what else to do about the situation that they found themselves in. And they had a really hard time finding one and then, you know, dealing with the problem. Uh, so it's, uh, that's why I say if there's an increase in calls, I'm sure statistically a large portion of them are, you know, BS in some form or another. But I think that that would indicate at least a, a high probability that there's more activity going on. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, in a lot of the, these cases, the, the they say that they're, these things can kind of attach because of an opening. And one thing that the, that a lot, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but a, a couple of people um, that I've read about within the Catholic Church have said it's kind of, they've, they've laid blame on, on some of these things. And one of the things they said was like a, the rise of porn, mm -hmm. like internet sure. porn and things like that. And it's kind of like, it, it's almost like you, you know, by going to kind of that kind of dark place, you're opening yourself up to, these kinds of energies mm. uh, that sounds kind of new agey and stuff like that. But I mean, I think that maybe it does have something to do with that as well as the fact that, you know, it is, it does seem like, uh, you know, secularism is kind of on the rise that a lot of people are kind of abandoning their traditional sort of religions. Um, 
and you know, I think that has its its negative points as well as its positive ones. But uh, one of the negative ones might be that you know, it's it's kind of like an embracing of a materialist kind of um, you know philosophy, and that by not believing that any of this st- kind of stuff can happen and thinking that sort of anything goes, you're kind of opening yourself up to that the you know to be kind of possessed by these things, whatever they are. Yeah. Yeah, that sure. makes sense. Well, and there's the not only thing. Mo- Sorry. Go ahead, I was Gabby, just going to say that there's not only more secularism, but there's actually people like worshiping the devil openly, you know, like mm-hmm. crazy rituals and, sure. you know, yeah. and. Chelsea Clinton. Mess- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's also kind of. Uh, concomitant rise in drug addiction and, and the opioid crisis. Yes, that's another so thing I said. Too, if that might have something to do with it, because when you're under the influence of drugs, some people, or at least some authors that I've read, uh, said that that can provide an opening to negative entities. Like if uh, you're an alcoholic or a drug addict or something, it kind of opens you up to these evil spirits. So yeah, say. because mm. it's because nobody remains home. You know, if you're drunk, you know, in La La Land, there's nobody home. Mm-hmm. So mm. there's nobody home. Yeah, the yeah, door's well, wide open. The devil made yes. me do it. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, Martin Malachi Martin says that the self-destructive behavior is a, is a very effective in for possession. Mm. And I don't I don't have an exact quote, so I'm sorry. I wish I did, but I remember from an interview that he did, and I think this was on uh, Coast to Coast. Uh, back in the day, um, he was talking about it having to do with the perception of one one's own of value. So how you judge your own self-worth, essentially, and not talking about an overblown sense of narcissism, but do you appreciate yourself enough to, you know, go for a walk, uh, not eat McDonald's every day, that kind of thing? Do you have a basic mm-hmm. sense of self-appreciation? And when you engage in destructive behavior, it displays your lack of care about your own vessel, uh, at which point... Uh, you know, it, now again, this is in the Martin Catholic context. The hovering mm-hmm. entities who are waiting to possess you will then come in because they see that you're you're essentially saying you're you're uh, you're allowing uh, consent. Mm-hmm. You're giving consent mm-hmm. by your by your behavior. Essentially, is what it is, and that's what he said over time. There's different levels of possession, again, in the Catholic context and in Malachi Martin's context, uh, the ultimate being what he calls perfect possession, which is where you can't distinguish. Uh, it, essentially, it could be a psychopathic person who's very good at appearing normal, um, but a, a person who is perfectly possessed would be like that um, to the point where they are fully inhabited by the entity. It actually controls their behavior, their choices, all of those things. Uh, and he said that takes years to get to, but it happens by little cuts over time, little mm-hmm. concessions of free will, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So any kind of self-destructive behavior would play into that, most especially, you know, sexual deviancy and uh, and uh, substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, it, again, like reinforcing the whole context thing, because, uh, you know, I, I want people, there are people who might say like, well, that's the Catholic thing. And I don't agree with that at all. You know, it's something else. Like, okay. It may be something else. But let's talk about all the things, you know, with an, with a kind of umbrella um, of how we're going to perceive it. Um, that's why I, I keep coming back to that so often through this discussion, because I wanted to, I don't know. I want to be that comprehensive. 
because we're not mm. just talking about we're not just talking about you know quote unquote Christian demon possession or exorcism mm. by a Catholic priest, although that is part of it. I think a lot of well, this also. Oh, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think that the, um, the reason that kind of this is everybody's go-to for it, I think, is just because, you know, the the Catholic Church has been doing it for you know how many centuries. And yeah. that that's kind of everybody's like frame of reference in the West, right? Like that's kind of, you know, it's it's prob it's what I think we're saying is that there's a phenomena here that kind of transcends individual cultures or religions that right. um, is going on in other cultures, like you mentioned before, Jonathan have been have been kind of talking about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, it's easy to dismiss as a Catholic thing, even though this right. obviously is something that is kind of a more um, objective phenomena that um, other cultures have experienced and talked about. You know, why would so many disparate cultures um, have a discussion about this? You know, the the idea obviously is something not just made up by the Catholic Church or, you know, just came about because they were, they couldn't explain like disease states or, you know, mental health states or something like that. Although I'm sure there was some confusion on that back in the day. Um, and currently, as we said before, but uh, but yeah, it seems to be there, that there's something going on here that that isn't just um, a religious thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Even in the religion, even sorry, I was just going to clarify that even in the Catholic religion, you know, uh, the exorcists they have uh, in their team psychiatrists and psychologists who rule out mental illness. You know, it has, mm, it's yeah. like they have to be skeptical always. They always have to think that it is something else and not a demon, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which is a healthy way to do it, I think. Yeah, totally. That is, I mean, despite I have many disagreements with the Catholic Church and how they run things, uh, mm. which may be like a no-brainer, but they they have some very interesting practices around this. Uh, and yeah, um, if you haven't read Hostage to the Devil, I can't say I'd recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you know. That's yeah, good. <laughs> no, but it, what I would say is basically not to not to beat a you know dead horse, but it, it, with the caveat that that you should be aware of what you're getting into, you know, mm-hmm. understand that like it, dabbling is a really stupid idea, and if you want to research something, then it's a very good book. Uh, if you want to watch a horror movie, then do that and don't read this book. Yeah, that's that's my review. <laughs> <laughs> Did but you it guys is know, yeah. Did yeah. you guys know that the most prominent American ufologist didn't consider himself an ufologist but a demonologist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and who is that, Gabby? This is John Keel, author <laughs> of UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse, The Mothman Prophecies, uh, The Flying Finger of Fate, and etc. <laughs> Disneyland of the Gods. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. you read a lot of his books and what he describes. I mean, with my uh, Baptist upbringing, I mean, I immediately thought, oh, these are demons. Yeah. What he's describing. Aliens, demons, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he draws that parallel too, right? He's just mm-hmm. saying that there's basically this phenomena going on. And that it's all, you know, we differentiate it, you know, between demons versus aliens or whatever the you want to throw in there, fairies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like there's, but but what he was describing in his research, and I think this is why his research is so valuable, actually, is that it's just it's just weird 
shit going on that, (laughs) you know, can manifest as any number of different things and seems to actually change over the centuries. Like it was really interesting that he was talking about back in the day before we were more of a technological society that there was all these sightings of zeppelins, you know, these mysterious zeppelins, like these aircraft that would have, you know, pilots in them and stuff like that. And people were like seeing these things and interacting with the people who are um, driving them and stuff like that. And then, you know, after a a number of years, suddenly in the fifties, it starts to become UFOs. And it's like, you know, he was drawing parallels between that and uh, you know, the idea of demonic possession and stuff like that, actually it fits within kind of this overall sort of Fordian phenomena. Yeah. I'm sorry, Gabby, just real quick for listeners who may not know that describe Fortian Fortian. Oh, uh, Charles Fort. Is that the guy's name? Mm-hmm. I don't know much about it. Actually. I, I know that he was a, like kind of one of the first or at least the most prolific kind of, um, researchers of paranormal phenomena and That's people right. who have come, yeah. have come since then, um, have been described as Fortian. And I know yeah, there was a magazine for a while, I don't know if it still exists, called the Fortian Times, which was basically covering all this kind of paranormal um, activity. Yeah. Just to clarify, I want to just clarify that because it sounds like Freudian. <laughs> yeah. So, Sorry. Fortian. Yeah, no, Fort- <laughs> which might be related. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that, yeah, um, it's... Uh, I think you stated it really well there, Doug. I don't know how, how else to say that, that Kiel was addressing a phenomena that is wide-ranging and adaptive to human culture in yeah. some way. Yeah, and it's it's really bizarre. And he, he even uh, goes so far as to say that, okay, if you want to simplify it in a nutshell, uh, men in black, like themselves in their black suits and their Cadillacs or whatever those things are that you see that look like Cadillacs, right? And... Mm-hmm. Uh, UFOs and uh, and Bigfoot uh, and Mothman and uh, Yeti and all these things that exist in different places. Not necessarily that they're the same thing, but they are a manifestation of a very similar phenomena. Mm-hmm. So the idea being that there's a force that, for whatever reason or purpose, can inject, can manipulate our reality, kind of almost at will, seemingly at will, and mm-hmm. you can get into like changing timelines and all sorts of crazy stuff. But that. That's the, I mean, you should read Operation Trojan Horse. Again, I would put that on the level with, uh, um, with Malachi Martin's work in, in the sense mm. that you want to be very careful about what you're getting into and understand that you're going to research a topic and not just read about something interesting. Uh, yeah. the way Kill describes it, um, many people that he knew directly related to this phenomena not only died, uh, and some died violently, but also were uh, mentally incapacitated, driven insane. Uh, ruin yeah. their lives, their families' lives. You know, it's not something to. Uh, it's like saying you're going to dabble in MMA. <laughs> What's MMA? Mixed martial <laughs> arts. Yeah. Like I'm just going to dabble with Brock Lesnar in, you know, in a UFC fight. That's what it's like, essentially. Yeah, you yeah. Dabble in exorcisms. Malachi Martin described it as kind of like a battle, like a war. Basically, a confrontation of the will between the exorcist and the evil spirit. And you have to be very mentally and physically sound. Like he was telling, I think he said that he'd had two heart attacks, and one of them was during the course of an exorcism. 
But hmm. the people that were involved, like his helpers in the exorcism, would become like violently ill at times, or people would meet a bad end like after the exorcism was over. And Malachi Martin himself, I mean, some people say that his death was kind of suspicious. Um, yeah. I think he'd had a an exorcism with a four-year-old girl. And yeah. people speculate that some evil entity may have pushed him mm-hmm. to his death. Yeah. Yes. Well, did he die later, though? Because I, I, it was confusing I was because old. I was reading he an article about 70s. it. But I think he got he pushed pushed off, and then he told people that he got pushed off, but he died from injuries related to that. I don't know if yeah, he died instantly. He, he died of head trauma after the fall, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that he had said that some kind of invisible invisible force pushed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. I might be getting that wrong, and I apologize if I am. Yeah, there was a CIA agent, I think, who witnessed it, and he said that it was the creepiest thing he ever saw when he was speaking with this four-year-old girl, you know, uh, Father, mm-hmm. Father Malachi. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And if you read it, Hostage to the Devil, I don't think it would surprise you after you read that. Uh, it's terrifying. I mean, the first story in that book is terrifying. Mm. <laughs> It's enough to make you really set it down and be like, okay. <laughs> uh, now, again, if you take it at face value, there are a lot of people who say straight up say that Malachi Martin is lying. You know, so mm-hmm. okay, that's a fair accusation. It does sound crazy. Um, yeah, but I would, I, I would quote, uh, shoot, I can't remember his name. There was a ufologist in in the United States who said um, said something along the lines of. Why is a person who would otherwise be a credible witness to a murder or a uh, car accident, you know, or, or an industrial accident um, suddenly incredible when the topic itself is incredible? You know, mm-hmm. so if you could put this person up on the stand, they're otherwise competent. They're not mentally ill. They have a steady life. Everything's in order. And they testify to you that they saw a car accident. Why is the context any different when the testimony is different? So that's that's yeah. how I approach Malachi Martin. When you see his work and listen to him speak, you can tell that he's articulate and, and that he has had an absolutely insane life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me, really, if, if some one of these, you know, energies, whatever you want to call them, was able to and did somehow push him. Um, yeah. Be, yeah. So, that's I mean, I have a... Oh, I, I, I knew again, um, I've had weird experiences with this, I think because I grew up in the church and Tiffany, you said you were Baptist too. And so was I. Yeah. And, uh, there was a really interesting view, like the viewpoints of possession in different religions and then not just in the religions, but in the, um, denominations are different. So, uh, in the sort of category of baptism that I was in, a lot of people believed that possession was real. Uh, but that exorcism was not effective and that Christians could not be possessed. Uh, if you were truly, <laughs> well, that's if you, yeah, if you had truly accepted and were, you know, uh, you know, in a state of salvation that you couldn't be possessed. Um, so yeah, I think that's an extremely careless attitude. Uh, but, uh, but they did talk about possession, but it was this very like off in the corner thing. Like, yes, it's real, but don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. You know, and so, I don't know, I think you grow up with a sort of uh, knowledge and ignorance in parallel where you know that it exists and then you, you're you're willfully ignorant about it. So um, I've had a number of encounters, personal and otherwise, with that kind of thing 
and um, a friend of the family uh, who uh, was a pastor uh, and was writing a book on uh, essentially on demonology. And he had weird stuff happen. Books would fly off the shelf and hit him in the head. His coffee would flop over onto his papers on the desk. He would hmm. smell the very distinct smell of sulfur when he came to the, he was working in this trailer. Uh, the trailer that he was working in got hit by a tornado uh, and he survived, but he was thrown like across his field. Um, so a lot of stuff happened. So uh, aside from the tornado thing, which could be like, you could, you could describe that to when he was in a trailer in tornado country, uh, yeah. all the other stuff, you know, all the other stuff you have to take as his testimony because you weren't there. Mm-hmm. So is he a credible witness to the book flying off the shelf and hitting him in the head? Or, mm. you know, was it some kind of hallucination? Uh, is his undiagnosed schizophrenic? You know, all these things are possible. So I think it's in order to talk about it, you have to allow for all the possibilities and then see which one makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then often I think the ones that are most likely true are the ones that actually don't make sense. So that's very different. Well, that, yeah, that's people. just it. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, I mean, it's been pointed out before that, like, you know, especially in um, – with with regards to kind of the UFO phenomenon, it's like, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, this person's just making up the story. And it's kind of like, well, this story, like, it ruins lives, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, why would why would a person want to put themselves through that? It's kind of yeah. like, why, you know, why would somebody want to put themselves out there to be disbelieved by everybody, to be accused of lying, um, to be, you know, have your mental fitness kind of questioned? Like, I, it, it's like there's no payoff, really. It just doesn't make any sense that someone would um, decide that, you know, it would be fun. Uh, I'm going to tell everybody that, uh, you know, I was possessed by demons or that I had a UFO experience or whatever the case may be. It's it's kind of like yeah. there, there, there seems to be very little motivation to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, like the... The people who I cited earlier who had to track down an exorcist, they don't talk about it. We talked about it because of a very specific reason that it came up, you know, but they don't go around telling mm-hmm. people that that went down. Uh, yeah, it's not only embarrassing, it's uh, possibly damaging to your career, even if it didn't, even if it didn't ruin your life. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you're mm-hmm. seen differently at work. You know, it's that crazy, like, is he a weird Christian guy, like super all right, like weird demon kind of dude or what? You know, people <laughs> start category- making these weird categories. And, uh, That's the and first time I've people. heard it attributed to the alt right. <laughs> you, heard, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, there is a camp. I don't know how to. I guess because I have uh, again some experience with that. But there's a camp of rural American Christian, sort of alt right-ish folk who uh, are very interested in demonology and ufology. It's a root, it's a subset of people that exist. There's quite a few of them. <laughs> so I guess that's what I meant. But uh, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, back to the topic at hand. Yeah, yeah I think uh, <laughs> looking at Keel's work, Malachi Martin's work. I mean, you can look if you want to look into uh, you know Castaneda. Um, mm-hmm. You can look into Gurdjieff's work. All this stuff like dovetails. Although Castaneda. He's a tough story. I like his I like his work a lot. I mm. personally feel like I gained a lot from reading uh this the Don Juan uh books. Um but uh I also understand that it has driven some people crazy and it drove him crazy. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being a really horrible guy. 
so, you know, what's the story with that? Does that dilute the work? I, I don't know, you know, cause it does, it does parallel a lot of other things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that Keel referred to it as the cosmic trickster, you know, and if you yeah. ever read, um, even like if you read any of his books, you'll get an idea of it. But I think, uh, the Mothman prophecies was actually really good for kind of showing all the phenomena that surrounded it. It's kind of like, you know, the Mothman was kind of the main event, but yeah. all the weird stuff that was going on around, um, that was just, it was just really bizarre, like really weird phone calls and like strange things like his, like Keel's uh, phone call started getting rerouted at one point to another number that was one number different than his, but the person at the other end was also named John Keel and had a very, <laughs> like, very similar voice to his. And it's kind of like, what? <laughs> like, how is that even possible? That doesn't make any sense. It's just like so many things where it's kind of like that does not fit within what I know of as reality. Like it just, like it just doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting when you kind of open it up to, to the, the kind of entire phenomena of, uh, you know, strange events or whatever you want to call it, high strangeness. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like how, how bizarre things really get. Um, you know, and the, and the, you yeah. know, the, the, the spirit possession thing just kind of fits into that in some other bizarre way. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it's kind of mind bending. Yeah. No, it I just agree. makes you wonder, like, what is the purpose of this? Like, mm. John Kill called them cosmic tricksters. I mean, are they just entities that enjoy messing with people? Yeah. And they get some, like, some kind of sustenance like, for that. I mean, what is the whole point of, Possessing people or haunting houses or alien abductions. What is, what's the ultimate point? Uh, Soul snatching. Misery and suffering. (laughs) The misery and suffering buffet. Yeah. I mean, it's a deep question, you know, and it's, uh, I think that's the question that is led into by all these different avenues that we were talking about the different cultures, what they perceive as negative entities, uh, even negative and positive entities, uh, and how do all those things dovetail into kind of a larger picture of what might be going on, uh, might be that uh, our uh, energy, our energetic output uh, is food, mm. right? Mm. And that's like, you know, we may not be at the top of the food chain, um, but that's, uh, you know, that sounds super crazy if you come at it from a John and Jane Doe perspective, I totally get that. So it's like, that's what, I mean, I don't bring that up with people, that idea, <laughs> you know, the fact oh, no? that I think that's true. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, unless Not it your average up, dinner table you know, conversation in a, yeah, in a normal conversation, no, or, or, you know, you really have to gauge with people. If you want to maintain friendships and business relationships, you don't just talk about shit like that. <laughs> A lot of people, even if they do believe in possessions or ghosts or hauntings or things like that, I don't think they ask the question of like, why? Like, what are these entities gaining from it? But uh, there's a Rudolf Steiner quote, if I may. Um, There are beings in the spiritual realms for whom anxiety and fear emanating from human beings offer welcome food, just like you said, Jonathan. When humans have no anxiety and fear, then these creatures starve. People not yet sufficiently convinced of this statement could understand it to be meant comparatively only. 
But for those who are familiar with this phenomenon, it is a reality. If fear and anxiety radiates from people and they break out in panic, then these creatures find welcome nutrition and they become more and more powerful. These beings are hostile towards humanity. Everything that feeds on negative feelings, on anxiety, fear, and superstition, despair, or doubt are in reality hostile forces in supersensible worlds, launching cruel attacks on human beings while they are being fed. Therefore, it is above all necessary to begin with that the person who enters the spiritual world overcomes fear, feelings of helplessness, despair, and anxiety. But these are exactly the feelings that belong to contemporary culture and materialism because it estranges people from the spiritual world. It is especially suited to evoke hopelessness and fear of the unknown in people, thereby calling up the above-mentioned hostile forces against them. Mm. So I think somebody mentioned earlier in the show about the rise in materialism. And Rudolf Steiner did kind of address that in that quote. Like people are starved for meaning and spirituality in their lives. And maybe these negative feelings that come from that starvation of connection with other people uh, can be one of the causes, at least, for this increase in evil activity that's going on, or at least that the Catholic priests are noting. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it, it's weird because people, I think you're right that people are kind of starved for meaning. Mm. But at the same time, there seems to be, like the rise of materialism seems to kind of, you know, it's it's almost like, there's a fear of things not being completely material. Mm. You know, this idea that, that there actually is, um, you know, a realm or, you know, something beyond what we can see, that there are beings that kind of inhabit this realm that we aren't aware of. You know, all these kinds of things, it's, it's kind of a scary thought. Mm. So I think that in a lot of cases, it's like people are starved for meaning, but at the same time, they're, they're terrified by the idea that, that materialism isn't the, the only reality mm. so it's sure. it yeah and i think that probably also makes people open to being exploited by that other reality mm-hmm. on the other hand it makes you wonder how close-minded are people when you have like the myths the vampire myth mm-hmm. or just mm-hmm. any vampire thing being so popular <clears throat> you know in the world yeah. today or, like, and, and always you know it's just like yeah. touch the collective unconscious of people. Yeah, vampires. <laughs> yeah, except sure. now they're cool. You know, they're not they're not evil anymore. They can't they can go out in sunlight and they shimmer instead of you know. <laughs> another sign of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think this this is an area where again you can apply a broad perception of cultural phenomena uh, because anybody who's been through a really painful divorce would tell you that vampires are real, right? Mm. Yeah. Yes, there's diff- a, that excellent is that? book, Unholy Hungers, about mm-hmm. psychic vampires. Yeah. Well worth a read. Yeah. I think and there is, I mean, yeah. it's kind of like, yeah, I think so too. It's like there's the, the, the archetype of the vampire. It's kind of like it manifests in people. I mean, one way of actually looking at possession is actually from the archetype perspective too. Where it's kind of like people are kind of embody this sort of archetypal type of reality. I don't know if that's a good way of putting it, but it's basically like the idea that, 
you know, it's not that the person is necessarily a psychic vampire, but it's just kind of like they, because they're unaware and because they're, they're kind of uh, sleepwalking through life, it's like this archetype can kind of come in and take over. And then they end up embodying this, this kind of archetype. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, selfishness can easily blossom mm. into, you know, like malignant narcissism. And pity too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I can totally see what you're saying there. I mean, a lot of people, and that actually kind of brings us to an interesting point that, uh, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to make sure I can say this clearly. Uh, talking about how this idea of possession or being messed with by something other than ourselves, how that manifests and how it's not always, you know, like murder or spitting green vomit, you know, or driving your car off a cliff. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of cases, uh, it can be very simple things and it can be kind of what we're talking about with like little selfish things or little areas of, uh, narcissistic tendencies or little things where you like just maybe not, don't care today, you know, like, I just can't, I just can't care about that person today. Or, um, you know, like a hypothetical say, you know, you like, you go to shut a drawer in the kitchen and it gets stuck and you rage out so hard that you break the drawer trying to slam it shut, you know, that kind of thing. Like, um, no, I have issues with that sometimes, but not very much in my life, like a handful of times, but I have different issues. And there's, I think those issues, quote unquote, like, areas of weakness in your life where you can be messed with um, is kind of an access point for that. And Martin talks about a similar thing where that's where he says the road to becoming perfectly possessed is, you know, paved with those little moments where you cede mm-hmm. your free will and you give into something that's an area of weakness and you don't employ any kind of like personal agency or determination or willpower. Uh, it's not saying it's a, it's possession 100% of the time. It's saying it's possible in that context. So it's mm-hmm. something to watch out for, you know. Well, um, he also if, said that the purpose of possession is to separate the person's soul from the presence of God. And if mm-hmm. you wonder what he means by the presence of, God, presence of God or what some alternate explanations could be, it could be from your your own conscience, consciousness or Life your force. own ability to be the best person that you can be and to always act in an upstanding manner and make good decisions for yourself. So to become possessed is to move further and further away from your ideal self until little bits of your conscience are just knocked away little by little. Sure. Yeah. So even if you don't think of it as possession by a demon per se, yeah. It's still you moving away from your full self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, there you can employ that idea to the, uh, to the culture that we live in. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess if you want to speak in archetypal terms, we are being possessed by our culture. I mean, you feel it when you go through the airport and you do the body scanner, those of you who don't opt out, I've opted out. I don't a lot of the time <laughs> It's such a pain, but I when, don't you, ever. <laughs> <laughs> when you go through that scanner and raise your arms up and you stand in, you know, those four TSA agents looking at you, don't you feel that? Then you feel that loss of personal agency, you know, and you understand that you're, you're being possessed by this culture. You have to partake and you're giving it away because, uh, if you don't give it away, there's going to be consequences. 
Mm. Well, Jordan Peterson talked about something similar when he was talking about Bill C-16, where the mm. law will try to force people to use certain words. And if he were to go on and do that, it's like part of him would die. Mm-hmm. Just a little part. Yeah. Yeah. Little by but little. But can you imagine where that type of thing became the norm all the time? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he said that recently, and he was on Rogan's show lately, yeah. and he said a similar thing that he, uh, upon like pain of legal prosecution, would not use these alternate gender pronouns, and like it was such a big deal to him because it was that like this part of my soul being taken away, and I need that agency in my life, you know. And I think, uh, I think also part of it was just because you're bugging me so hard. You know, <laughs> where at a certain point it's like, I'm just going to keep saying no if you're going to keep pushing. Uh, I think he's there too. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you give that up, you know, um, it's the same context. So trying to draw those parallels. So you're giving up your willpower and your, your agency, not to use that word too much, but in, in culture. And uh, you can also do that. Just in your own life, giving into your own impulses, your, your worst nature, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And then you have like extreme cases where you're actually talking about, you know, you're encountering something other, which is trying to mess with you. And why would it try to destroy your life? Well, we don't know. Um, but we can speculate that it might be because you're really tasty. <sighs> you know, yeah. when you freak out, when you're in panic, when you're in fear and desperation, <clears throat> you uh, appear to be. Uh, uh, a delicacy to things that are not in our in our realm. And however crazy that sounds to you, I think if you did enough, like connecting the dots, uh, enough is the wrong word. Uh, if you if you look at certain aspects of different cultures, like we've been talking about, you come to this conclusion that that is a at very least a, a possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, Malachi Martin also said uh, some things about people who offer themselves up willingly to dark forces while they're in a state of desperation. Like he's, for example, like um, someone whose relationship is breaking up and they'll say something like, I'll do anything or anything to make this pain go away or bring my girlfriend or my boyfriend back to me. And uh, he said that in those certain situations that that person opened themselves up for, possession Mm, that sounds kind of simple because we've all felt very desperate and wanted the pain to go away but i don't i don't think i've ever said (laughs) you know somebody come in and save me from this pain or anything (laughs) like that or i don't know i think it's in those states that people get into they're seeking any kind of relief and even if it means that they give up their will to something. I don't know if they necessarily think that the dark forces are going to come in, but they give mm-hmm. up their agency, that word again, yeah. Jonathan, yeah. to something it's an, besides themselves. Yeah. It's an appropriate word for that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it, it to, you know, I think what's really terrifying too, or would be for, uh, and no offense to Christians, I, I was one for many years. I guess I kind of still am sort of, but we can get into that another day. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that when you pray in desperation for something to be fixed and it is fixed and you believe that God has fixed your problem, uh, it may have very well been something else. 
that wanted to gain your trust. Mm -hmm. And now every time you have a problem, you go to that thing and you think you're praying and being saved, but eventually it's going to turn into something dark and you're going to ask for something a little bit selfish or a little bit darker. And, mm -hmm. and then it goes that way. And the initial presentation is not darkness. It's usually disguised as something very charming and light. Yeah. Yeah, so I think Christians would be super bummed if they thought that that was the case. <laughs> so better, you know, there are there are cases in here where it's like knowledge is is power, right? And you need knowledge to navigate through life. But I think that there are cases to be made where certain people are better off not knowing. Mm. And I, I know how weird that sounds. I'm not trying to say that I'm the one to decide whether or not they should know. Mm -hmm. But I think leaving it up to them coming to it organically or not coming to it is kind of the way to go. Mm. Well, I think people do have those experiences, you know, high strangeness or unexplained phenomena. And as you said earlier, Jonathan, it's not like you can just strike up a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it does happen. Um, there are cases, even in uh, professional cases, where you're at like a conference or something, you get into a conversation with somebody and you find out their cousin saw a UFO, you know, that kind of thing does mm -hmm. happen. But, um, yeah, most of the time it's not a it's not like a dinner table topic, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that brings me back to my point about dabbling. I think that's, that's <clears throat> where a lot of people get misguided because they think that like they're just going to get a Ouija board and try it out, you know, or they're going to play Bloody Mary in the mirror, you know, or they're going to uh, to to try to like interrogate somebody they know who had an experience but doesn't really want to talk about it, you know, because they're fascinated by it. That's dabbling, and that's like the equivalent of getting into a, a fighting ring with a professional boxer. Um, mm. And I think a lot of people go down the wrong path with that. So that's my advice: is if you're going to research it, at least know that it's that it has that level of power, and that you should go into it with some intent. That's all I'm saying. Mm. True. So I mean, if you believe John Keel. It can go as far as your brake, your brake lines, you know, disappearing out of the car, <laughs> not just being cut. You know what I mean? While you're going on the highway or uh, any number of things, um, mm -hmm. all those things have happened to people. Uh, you know, so it's, I'm not trying to instill fear. I'm just saying, be careful. You know, something is real here. We don't really know what it is, but be careful with it. And sometimes there can be nuts and bolts explanations for strange things that are going on like you have yeah. to wonder if your if your diet is correct or if you're just not paying attention as you should be and not just mm. assume that there is some entity that's out to get you yeah it could yeah. be the wooden or dairy demon <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly like i think i think that's a very good point because mm -hmm. i think um a lot of times people are, are sort of primed to look for the more, um, what would be the word for it? Well, the high strangeness kind of explanation for things. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in, in a lot of cases, it's like, well, you know, you have to look at your life and kind of see maybe where things are out of control. Like if you're in a crazy kind of family situation where things are all chaotic and really um, horrifically terrible, if, you're, uh, if your diet is completely off track or something like that. It's like, those are the places to look for explanation first mm -hmm. rather yeah. than um, just like you said, like, Oh, there's a, there's a demon that's out to get me or, you know, fourth density STS is messing with me. It's like, well, 
you know, get your life sorted out for like Jordan Peterson, right? Like sort yourself yeah. out first and then, yeah. then start going after these really kind of bizarre um, explanations for things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. even a, ma- a matter of kind of like when something synchronous happens, you know, you have some kind of synchronistic or coincidental kind of thing. And it's like, people really want to ascribe like magic to that. Like it, this happened because of magic. It's like, well, you know, there is the possibility that it was just a coincidence Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, maybe it's just kind of like, you don't necessarily have to ascribe some kind of higher meaning to it or something like that. Like, oh, God is telling me I'm on the right path. Well, maybe something coincidental just happened. Like, let's, let's <laughs> kind of take the more mundane yeah. explanation first before we try to ascribe something, you know, that a higher power has chosen you in some way. Mm-hmm. Totally. It, yeah. I had those same experiences. Like, uh, a fun one was one time a friend of mine and I were talking about the idea that that ufos say ufos to be simplistic but the idea that some kind of interdimensional craft could present itself as a cloud so it could just be mm-hmm. in the sky as a cloud so we were just having a fun conversation talking about this idea then i went to work and when i pulled into the parking lot uh the car that was parked in front of my spot had a sticker on the back that said cloud veil on it <laughs> <laughs> so i thought whoa it was fun so i thought that that was really fun but I'm not going around like, dude, clouds or UFOs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so there needs to be some balance between, oh, that's cool. You know, so I recognize the existence of that kind of beautiful moment in my life, but you can't let it make mm-hmm. you into a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, but- I think your point about ascribing negative things is really important. Like I have known people, not to single anybody out, but I've known people who, uh, when they learned about the concept of spirit attachments, all of a sudden everything was an attachment. You know, yeah, exactly. All the problems or psychopathy. People learn about psychopaths and, and the existence of psychopaths. Now everybody's a psychopath who has some sort of negative intent. I did that yeah. myself when I was learning about the concept of programs and how we are, are you know, programmed or uh, set to do certain things or we behave programmatically like that concept for a good few years, everything was programs. All my problems were programs, you know, and, uh, and I didn't, I didn't like ascribe any of it to like, no, you just didn't choose to do the right thing there. Uh, Mm. you know, so yeah, you can get misguided and then ascribe all your issues to one area, which is not the way to go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, synchronicities are real and they're super fun. Um, Yeah. We just had one the other other day, like just a few days ago, I went to a shop, uh, a print shop to talk to a guy about getting a print job done. And uh, <clears throat> the guy recognized me. I had met him some years ago at another guy's place. And so we were like, oh, hey, how are you doing? And then I went up to the store. And when I pulled into the parking lot, I saw that other guy who I hadn't seen in like six years. So oh. that was weird, you know, and it's yeah. really fun, those little moments. But you can't go crazy over them. And I no. think if you don't, I think if you don't go crazy over them, they happen more. Because then you're like, you're, you're almost like saying you're declaring your intent. Like, this is really fun. I want to see more of this and I'm not going to like blow it out of proportion and you get to see mm. more of it. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. Well, I noticed another thing too, and a lot of people have mentioned this before. So I think it's a fairly common phenomenon, but when you have some kind of like significant number or something like that, and then you suddenly start seeing it everywhere, yeah. um, you know, like every time you look at a clock, it's like this particular time or something and and maybe not every time, but often. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could just describe it as like, you know, it's the, the kind of the same thing when, 
Uh, I remember when I was thinking about buying a car and I was looking at a particular model and suddenly I started seeing that car everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, it's probably not that the car was actually just showing up more often. It was just that I was noticing it more. It might be the same kind of thing with the, with the, the clock or the numbers or something like that. It's like, it's not that they're around more often. It's just that maybe you're noticing it more Mm -hmm. or maybe it is some kind of synchronous thing where it's kind of like you've, you've kind of, uh, put more value on this so suddenly you're attracting it into your life in some way. But I know it's it's kind of a, a, a popular interpretation of that, that it means something. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this number means something. And then start like kind of really trying to take it apart and it's like, what is, what is, some, I'm, I'm being communicated with by some, you know, by something. And, and I have to ascribe some kind of meaning to it or something. And I think that your attitude, Jonathan, kind of seems like a little bit more sane mm-hmm. where it's kind of like, that's cool. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going like, to go yeah. play that number in the lotto. <laughs> no, see, that's ascribing meaning to it. I don't think it works. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, no, try it. No. I don't know. See. Well, I know a lot of if people you, who do that. Like if they dream of a certain number or see a certain number on the clock, they immediately go out and play the lotto. <laughs> yeah. Right, but this 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 is the fine line. The, you uh, play the lotto by all means, but don't be disappointed when you lose. Right. Yeah. And if you if you cannot be disappointed that you lose, you might win. But if you think that way, then you won't. <laughs> and it keeps going. It keeps going that way. It's, it's getting sticky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, like just being open. I mean, have fun. You know, but not so open that your brains fall out. Yeah. <laughs> life, life is a dangerous place, and some people and things do mean you harm. But you know, there's stuff that's really fun and fascinating too. And I think like. I don't know. The one of John Keel's stories this brings to mind. So this guy is a farmer. UFO, classic UFO silver disc lands in his backyard. The door opens up and these beings come up and they're uh, they're like humans. They look like maintenance workers. If I remember the story correctly, you guys can correct me if this is wrong. But they asked him if he had a uh, a wrench, like a regular old wrench. So he went and got one and then they wanted water. Um, so he got him a bucket of water and they were working on their craft with this wrench and he peeked inside and inside was a wood stove and on this wood stove, (laughs) they were making pancakes and they gave him pancakes, which were later tested out to be cornstarch and water and salt. No, it was buckwheat, wasn't it? Or. Oh, it might have been I thought buckwheat. it was buckwheat. Yeah. I might be wrong though, because I remember being right. like, you know, because I was eating buckwheat at the time, and it was kind of like buckwheat. Yeah. This means something. <laughs> yeah. So, Perfect example. I guess to sum up, to sum up my personal opinion about the attitude, if 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 when that happens, let's say that happens, the most bizarre thing you can imagine happens to you, and you can go out there and keep your head on straight and go, why do you have a wood stove in your UFO? <laughs> Then, you know, the whole thing might disappear or they might turn into demons and be like, ah, shit, we got to get out of here. You know, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I really don't know. But I think having an open attitude with a sense of, you know, purpose and determination. uh, It's like I just learned because you brought up Peterson and he mentioned this quote in this recent interview from the Bible that the meek shall inherit the earth. And he said it's not entirely mm. accurate that the translation is actually that those who understand how to use the sword but keep it sheathed will inherit yeah. the earth. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess that that's well. kind of what I'm talking about, kind of, if that makes any sense. So I have fun, but be careful, you know, and be on guard. Mm. So. Yeah. But, you know, that's, again, with the caution thing, you know, if we could talk, we could go back and forth on this for hours. 
but yeah, I mean, if you kind of, if you run into somebody and you're like, well, I think I might be dealing with a case of demon possession here. Don't <laughs> mess with it. Like, get out. <laughs> run away. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It is not your place to try to mess with that. Um, mm. You know, I guess unless you, it's the only thing possible and, and you're the one who's presented with that, but it's a, it's a deep, dark world. Um, but you know, there's, there's darkness and light and that's the yin and yang. And you got to be able to handle both of them. Appreciate the light. Um, be wary of the dark, appreciate it for how powerful it is. You know, all of those things try to balance them all together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, I think we are kind of coming up on our time. So let's go to the pet health segment and uh, lighten the mood slightly and we'll wrap it up mm-hmm. when we come back. And welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I would like to share with you a TED Talk by Carl Safina. Dr. Safina is a marine conservationist and professor at Stony Brook University on Long Island, and he is clearly unafraid to challenge scientific orthodoxy. He accepts as a given that animals are capable of thought and emotion, a proposition that is far from being <clears throat> settled among animal behaviorists. And it's true that his ideas are rather uh, controversial in comparison to the accepted view that most animals do not have the same level of consciousness as us or the same capacity for self-awareness. But we do know that mainstream science also rejects ideas of Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. So perhaps what Carl Safina says isn't so outrageous after all. Or at least it is something that we should consider. So listen up and have a great weekend. We start with a simple question. Does my pet really love me, or does she just want a treat? (laughs) Obviously, she really loves us. Obviously, right? (laughs) How do we know what's really going on in those furry little heads? Something is going on. And why is the question always, do they love me? Why is it always about us? Why are we such narcissists? I have a different question. Who are you? That's a better question for animals, I think. We have things going on in our minds that we tend to assume are the exclusive abilities of humans. But there are other brains out there. Some of them are very big. What are they doing with those big brains? Can they think? Can they feel? How can we possibly find a way into that question? Well, there are ways in. We can look at the brain, we can look at evolution, and we can look at behaviors. First thing we have to realize is that our mind is inherited. Our brain comes from somewhere else. Jellyfish had the first nerves. The first nerves gave us the first spinal cords. The first spinal cords became the first vertebrates. Vertebrates came out of the ocean and started to create all kinds of trouble. It's still true that nerves of a fish or a dog or a person all are basically the same. It's their organization that matters. But if the nerves are the same, 
What does that have to say about the possibility of mental experiences? Something like a crayfish, for instance. It turns out that you can give a crayfish anxiety disorder by giving it little electric shocks every time it tries to come out of its burrow. But if you give it the same drug that is used to treat anxiety disorder in humans, the crayfish relaxes, mellows out, and comes out and starts exploring. Same thing with dogs with obsessive compulsive disorder. You give them the same drugs used to treat OCD in humans, it works for them too. What does that have to say about the parallel functionings of our brains? Do we celebrate the anxiety of crayfish? No, mostly we just boil them. <laughs> Octopuses use tools as well as do most apes. They recognize human faces. Do we celebrate the ape-like minds of octopi? Mostly, we boil them. <laughs> when grouper fish chase a prey fish into a crevice in the coral, they will go to where they know a moray eel is sleeping, and they will signal to the moray, follow me. The moray goes, the moray will slither into the crevice, sometimes the moray will get the fish, sometimes the fish bolts, and the grouper gets it. It's a partnership. How do we celebrate the partnership between groupers and moray eels? Mostly fried. <laughs> sea otters use stone tools, and sea otters take time away from their own doings to teach baby sea otters what to do. Chimpanzees use tools, but chimpanzees don't take time to teach. Killer whales teach, and they share food. When we look at human brains, we see that the human brain is an elaboration on earlier brains, an elaboration that comes through the long sweep of evolution. If you look at the human brain and a chimpanzee brain, you see that the human brain is basically a very big chimpanzee brain. It's big, at least, so we can retain a certain insecure sense of our own superiority, which is the main thing that matters to us. But uh-oh, there's a dolphin brain. Bigger, more convolutions. What is it doing with that brain? We can see brains, but cannot see minds. Yet, we can see the workings of minds in the logic of behaviors. These elephants in this family of elephants, they have found a shady patch under the palms. That's a good place to let the babies go to sleep. The adults are resting too, but they're just dozing and they're staying a little bit vigilant all the time. We make sense of that because they make sense of the world in similar ways. They look relaxed because they are relaxed. They've chosen the shade for the same reason we would choose the shade. These elephants don't look relaxed. No one would make that mistake looking at them. They seem alarmed. They are alarmed. There are dangers. There are people who hurt them. It turns out that if you record the conversations of tourists and you record the conversations of herders who sometimes hurt elephants, and then you play it through a hidden speaker, the elephants ignore the tourists, but they bunch up and flee in fear from the conversations of herders. They put different kinds of humans in different categories. They know what's going on. 
They know who their friends are. They know who their enemies are. They know who their family members are. They have the same imperatives that we have, whether on land or in the sea. It's the same. Stay alive. Keep your babies alive. Let life continue. We see and understand helping. We see curiosity in the young. We see the bonds of family members. We recognize affection for what it is. Courtship is courtship. People sometimes still ask, but are they conscious? Well, when you get general anesthesia, you become unconscious. It means that all of your sensory input is stopped. You have no sensation of the world around you. That's unconscious. When you have sensation of the world around you, you are conscious. Consciousness is very widespread. Some people think that empathy is a very special thing that only humans have. But empathy is simply the mind's ability to match the mood of your companions. It's very useful and it's very important. You have to know what's going on around you, what everybody's doing. The oldest kind of empathy is called contagious fear. If you're with a bunch of companions and they suddenly all startle and leave, it's not very good for you to be standing there saying, hey, I wonder why everybody just left. <laughs> Through evolution, empathy has been embellished as well. I, I think there are sort of three stages of empathy. There's feeling with another. I see you're happy, it makes me happy. I see you're sad, it makes me sad. Then there's sympathy. I'm sorry your grandmother died. I don't feel the same way that you do, but I sympathize. And then there is what I call compassion, meaning acting on your feeling for another. Far from being a special thing that only humans have, human empathy is far from perfect. We round up empathic animals, we kill them, and we eat them. And you might say, well, that's just predation, that's a different species. Humans are predators, but we're not so great to our own species either a lot of the time. I've noticed that people who know only one thing about animal behavior know this word, and that you must never project human feelings and emotions on other animals. But I'm here to tell you that I think that projecting human emotions and human thoughts on other animals is the best first guess about what they're doing and why. After all, it's not terribly scientific to say they're hungry when they're eating and they're tired when their tongues are hanging out. And then when they are playing and seem joyful, say, we have no way of knowing what's going on in their minds. Now, recently... I sort of had that conversation with a reporter, and the reporter said, okay, that's kind of convincing, but really, how do you really know that other animals think and feel? And I thought of the hundreds of scientific references that I read when I was writing my book, but then I realized that the answer was right in the room with me. That when my pup comes off the rug and comes over to me, rolls over on her back and exposes her belly, she has had the thought, I would like my belly rubbed. And she knows that she can come to me, not the sofa, that I will understand her request and that I can get the job done. And she anticipates the pleasure of having her belly rubbed. She can think 
and she can feel. And it's not much more complicated than that. Usually when we see animals, we say, oh, look, there's elephants or there's killer whales or whatever it is we see. But to them, they know exactly who they are. This is not just killer whales. That one with the tall fin, that male there, he's 36-year-old L41. Right to his left is his sister. She is 42-year-old L44. They've been together for decades. They know exactly who they are. This is Philo the elephant. This is Philo the elephant four days later. Humans not only feel grief, humans create grief. We want to carve their teeth. Why don't we wait for them to die? Elephants used to live from the shores of the Mediterranean to the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. By 1980, they still had vast strongholds in Central and East Africa. Their ranges are being fractured and fragmented. This is the geography of a magnificent creature that we are driving to extinction. We do much better in our own national parks here in the United States. We simply killed every single wolf in Yellowstone. Then 60 years later, we brought them back because the elk had gotten out of control. Many thousands of people spent many millions of dollars coming to the park to watch the world's most famous wolves. These are the alpha trio of a very stable pack. That one on the right there is the breeding male. The one on the left is his mate. The other one is his brother. Then suddenly, wolves came off the Endangered Species Act. Congress took wolves off. The wolves went to the edge of the park. Those two were shot. The entire pack, which had been so stable, disintegrated into fighting and division. The alpha male of the most famous, most stable pack in Yellowstone lost his companions, his hunting territory, and his whole family. We bring them a lot of harm. One of the mysteries is, why don't they harm us very much at all? No free-living killer whale has ever hurt a human being. This one had just finished eating part of a gray whale that he and his family had killed, but those people in the boat had absolutely nothing to fear. This one had just eaten a seal that weighed as much as those people in the boat, but they had absolutely nothing to fear. They eat seals. Why don't they ever eat us? How is it we can trust them around our toddlers? Why is it that on more than one occasion, killer whales have returned to researchers who got lost in the fog and guided them miles to home? In the Bahamas, dolphins who were very familiar with Denise Herzing, a researcher there, and um, very interactive with her, suddenly got entirely skittish. What in the world was going on? Suddenly somebody on the boat realized that a person in the boat had died during a nap in their bunk. How could the dolphins have detected that one of the human hearts had stopped? And why would it spook them? These are the mysteries of other minds. In an aquarium in South Africa, there was a baby bottlenose dolphin. Her name was Dolly. One of the keepers was on a break having a smoke outside the window to the tank. Dolly was watching, watching him smoke. She went over to her mother. She nursed for a couple of moments. She came back to the window and she released a cloud of milk that enveloped her head like a cloud of smoke. <laughs> Somehow she had the idea 
of using milk to represent smoke. And when we use one thing to represent another, we call it art. (laughs) The things that make us human are not what we think. What makes us human is that we are the most extreme. We are the most compassionate. We are the most violent. We are the most creative. And we are the most destructive animals ever to appear on this planet. But we are not the only animals that love one another. We are not the only ones who care for our mates or for our children. Albatrosses routinely fly six to 10,000 miles to bring back one meal for their chick. They live on the most remote islands in the world, and those islands are covered with plastic trash into the sacred chain of being that gives life from one generation to the next is our garbage. Here is an albatross chick that was about six months old, was about to start flying, it died. It was packed with red cigarette lighters. This is not the relationship we are supposed to have with the world. But we, with our big celebrated brains, don't use them. Yet when we welcome new life into the world, we welcome them with pictures of animals. We don't paint cell phones and work cubicles on nursery walls. We want to say, look who's here with us. And yet every one of those, every one deemed worthy of being saved on Noah's Ark is in mortal danger now. And the flood is us. We started with a question. Do they love us? We need to get outside ourselves a little bit and ask, do we have what it takes to simply let life on earth continue? Thank you. Those are yes. some goats. Some thinking and feeling goats. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I guess that is our show for today. Yeah. Uh, thanks to all our chatters in the chat room. Um, thanks to Zoya for the pet health segment. We will be back next week with another topic to be determined. Uh, don't forget to listen to the other SOT radio show on Sunday and everybody have a good weekend. Goodbye everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.